Right, time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. Okay, another big day here on the vaccine front. We're expecting mm-hmm. a news conference this afternoon, 2 o'clock, and we're anticipating details about when people can expect to get their second dose of vaccine, right? Yeah, what are you so, hearing? So the interval is going to shorten again. So it started out at 16 weeks, if you recall, four months. Then it was shortened last week to 13 weeks. I'm told, talking to officials yesterday, they're looking at somewhere between seven and nine weeks um, oh. for the second doses for all vaccines, um, although primarily we, we have Pfizer. That's our dominant vaccine. But that's um, the interval is going to shorten. So it's, uh, But it's not going to shorten to the, um, you know, the manufacturer says 21 days or 28 days. It's not going to be that, but it's going to be seven to nine weeks. And again, my understanding is a little complicated. It's either seven to nine weeks uh, when you can make your booking, or it's uh, seven to nine weeks when you can actually get the actual shot. So that, that's there was a bit of confusion yesterday. So it could be it could be a little longer than that, but it's certainly going to be shorter than thirteen. Okay, weeks. and why are they able to do that? They've got more vaccine coming in than they anticipated, or yeah. So back when we had sixteen weeks, we hardly had any vaccine, and the, yeah. and the prospects of getting vaccine were were kind of dim. If you recall, right at the beginning, Pfizer shut down their manufacturing facility in Belgium to expand it, yeah, uh, to expand its production. And so the supply chain dried up for a long time, uh, and we never did get a lot of uh, Moderna or AstraZeneca compared to Pfizer. So the 16-week gap was established when we didn't have a lot of vaccine. Now we're getting, uh, this month, 276,000 doses of Pfizer every week. In uh, June, that's supposed to increase to 327,000 doses a week, so 1.3 million doses next week, uh, next month from wow. Pfizer. And we don't know about Moderna. It arrives erratically. Uh, we got 132,000 doses last week. There is a, a hope uh, that we get another similar amount of Moderna in mid-June, but that's not guaranteed. And then, of course, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, who knows? I mean, Johnson & Johnson's a real mystery. I mean, this there's um, our share of the federal allotment that's sitting in a warehouse in Ottawa is 40,000 doses. This, this is a... Um, the doses that came from a manufacturing that's plant. A, that's a single dose vaccine, I recall. Yeah, it's yeah. a single dose, single jab. Uh, but it came from a, a facility that had serious safety concerns in Baltimore. And so that, that, those vaccines have not been cleared for takeoff. But on top of that, we do have, um, I understand it, we've signed uh, contracts with Johnson and Johnson for millions of vaccines and suddenly they've just, uh, not, not materialized. Okay. As you mentioned, Pfizer is the the workhorse of this vaccine program. We got more Pfizer than any other type of vaccine. And for people though who and it's exciting news, it's more good news to hear they're going to move up the second dose, which is great. That'll be confirmed this afternoon. But for people who have did not receive Pfizer in their first shot, like if you got the AstraZeneca shot like I did, like you did, mm-hmm. um and if there's no AstraZeneca around, What's what's up with that? It appears, Dr. Henry says, we are going to be entitled to access to one of the messenger RNA vaccines, which is Pfizer, basically, or Moderna, if there's Moderna here. So we will be eligible. I to thought get they were still studying that. Is, they it, are, is it okay to mix and match them? Or? They are still studying it, but um, the last couple of briefings we had, we would have access to that, that messenger RNA uh, vaccine. But um, mm. there have been some studies that suggest mixing and matching actually strengthens the the immunity. 
But again, uh, there's limited data since the beginning of this pandemic on so many things associated with this coronavirus because it's a, it's a novel coronavirus and it's new. Okay, 2 o'clock this afternoon is when we'll get more details on that and CKNW bringing you that live. We're also going to get some uh, announcement that some of the surgeries that were um, canceled or, or right. um, suspended are going to return. Uh, not all of them uh, right away, but I think there were about 2,000 sur- elective surgeries because of the surge in cases in, in hospital and, and and the and it wasn't a bed shortage so much as it was pressure on frontline healthcare staff in hospitals was enormous when we had you know 511 people suddenly going into hospital with COVID-19 most of them in the Fraser Health Authority that put a real strain on the staff of the healthcare system so that's why surgeries were were cancelled or, or postponed. Okay. Uh, and that's going to be on stage. Okay, more information coming on that this afternoon as well. Let's talk about the possibility of uh, vaccine passports coming to Canada. This is a topic we mm-hmm. covered earlier on the on the show this week, and I think it's quite clear that the the federal government leaning toward uh, vaccine passport system for international travel, some pressure to bring in some domestic restrictions on proof of vaccine doesn't sound like the federal government wants to go there. Let's play a couple of clips here, and I get your take on it. Here is Jay Chalk who is the ombudsperson in British Columbia on concerns about vaccine passports. There should be a cautious approach to adopting any kind of certification scheme. And so we have said that there are lots of risks of unfair treatment and unjust outcomes. We thought it was prudent to kind of stipulate what we thought fair treatment looked like before uh, uh, these schemes were widely adopted in Canada, and I think with our our, our strong caution today, uh, there may be a number of public bodies who say it's not really uh, appropriate to do that. Okay, interesting. He's kind of an independent watchdog in British Columbia, sort of putting a marker down there well, with concerns on these passports. He wasn't. So a bunch of ombudspersons across Canada yesterday uh, issued uh, a statement about this, expressing concern. I don't think we're going to see a domestic passport. Uh, I think the challenges with it are are enormous. And and Jay Chalk and ombuds people and Dr. Bonnie Henry pointed out uh, this can inadvertently penalize a lot of people. Uh, so, but internationally, I think probably for sure. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry, she's indicated she's not too thrilled about a domestic uh, proof of vaccine requirement either, and here she is speaking about that, Dr. Bonnie Henry here. It would not be my advice that we have any sort of vaccine passport within British Columbia for services in B.C. Okay, even though we've seen some other countries go down this road, very notably uh, Israel, Israel. which brought in that green card system is basically like a barcode that you have to have scanned Mm -hmm. before you can get into a restaurant or a sporting event. Well, Israel has a completely different internal security system than any other country. I mean, (laughs) uh, they have all sorts of security concerns that we don't have. So I think that society is more used to something like that. But thats I just don't see any evidence uh, that any government or politician in Canada wants to see a domestic uh, passport. But an international, I mean, you got to... You got to show your inoculations if you want to travel to certain South American countries. Your yellow fever papers. Uh, so it's not unheard of internationally, and I think uh, it's more than likely we're going to see it uh, with this one. Yeah, too. I think that's certainly coming for international travel, so we continue to follow that one for you. Let's uh, bring the listeners an update here on the logging protests we're seeing on Vancouver Island. We talked about this on the show mm-hmm. yesterday in the Ferry Creek area near Victoria, um, where there's some logging of old-growth trees going on there. There's been a lot of arrests. There's been over 100 people arrested at these blockades there. 
very, very tricky, tricky one for government because you got the First Nation very importantly supporting mm-hmm. the logging in the area. The First Nation, the Pachydat First Nation, has asked these protesters to get out of their territory. The protesters have ignored them. In fact, there seems to be more protesters showing up. So we had like a debate on this yesterday that was just rock'em sock'em here. We had uh, Sapora Berman on, who is a, a very high-profile environmental leader. She's actually been arrested on the front lines of this mm-hmm. blockade the other day. And she debated Bill Dumont on the show yesterday, who is a professional forester. Got quite heated at times. Have a listen. If we got that, the Sapporo Berman clip there, Tim, we got that? When I was blockading in the Great Bear Rainforest, he and others called me a terrorist and said that this shouldn't be happening and that it was um, it was absolutely unnecessary. Well, 10 years later, we all stood on a stage together and the province thanked us for being eco-heroes, for saying the same thing. Okay, Bill, what do you say? How do you respond to that? Well, Sapporo, uh, let's not rewrite history. On Roderick Island, uh, Chief Percy Starr came over and asked you there not to be involved and asked you to leave his territory, and you respectfully did. I don't know why you didn't do the same in Ferry Creek. Okay, this is a really interesting dispute. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, it's fascinating. I talked to a senior government um, staffer yesterday who said, well, we've gone all in on UNDRIP. Uh, we can't really... That's the UN that, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Yes, and which means supporting First Nations. Right. And you've got the Pachydat First Nations, which has been logging for generations in this area, who have signed contracts with this company, have operate mills. And they want, as you mentioned, they want these protesters to leave. And you suddenly got the NDP government smack in the middle of this thing. And it's different than Clockwood because the first, uh, the circumstances have changed. UNDRIP wasn't there in 1993. Uh, you did not have the First Nations take a, a more a, a, an active role in pro-forestry back then, as you see right now. So this is a fascinating dispute. Not sure how it's going to end or if it's going to end. But you it, think it's it, going to escalate? I mean, we've got over 100 people arrested, more more arrests, it seems, by the day. I think so, because what you're going to see over summer, the travel restrictions will ease. This is a relatively easy spot to get to. It's a bit of a hike from Victoria, It's not, uh, but it's it's accessible. It's not like Clockwood, yeah. which is was uh, more remote. And I think more than 800 people got arrested there. Yes. Uh, this uh, Port Renfrew is, you know, I've been, I was in Port Renfrew, just outside of Port Renfrew, where this, where Ferry Creek is, um, a summer ago, or because it's part of the this internal circle route, uh, if you want to sure. avoid the Malahat Pass. So it's it's accessible, which means people are going to travel there and they're going to get arrested. All right, welcome back, Keith Baldry is my guest. Baldry's beat. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Ross on the line of Merritt. Hey, Ross. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Hi. Um. How about a monetary incentive to the protesters in the form of a fine, $1,000 a pop? And that may, you break the law, you pay the price. If you want to break the law, pay $1,000. You want to break it again, pay $1,000. Well, there is a penalty. There is a penalty. Like if you're arrested, I presume you're subject to a fine. I'm not sure what the fine is. No. Uh, So, again, the rules vary sometimes depending on um, what the what charge is. If it's civil disobedience, often um, there's not necessarily fine. Often there is a Trans Mountain protest on Burnaby Mountain, if you recall. I think a number of people were fined uh, as a result of uh, being arrested for civil disobedience. But again, I'm not sure fines would deter people. A thousand dollars. I mean, I've seen a lot of environmental protesters uh, ready to lay down in front of things for and pay uh, more fines, uh, higher fines than something like that. And like you mentioned, the Clockwood Sound blockades from many, many years ago, which I covered at the time, and 
you know, there were 800 people were arrested that summer. That was still, I believe, the largest civil dis- disobedience campaign in Canadian history. Yep. Yep. Um, some think that this one could escalate maybe into that league. We'll see. I mean, there's still a long, long could, ways to go there. It could definitely escalate into into that level of um, of protest. I wouldn't discount that at all. Let's go to Ken on the line in Langley. Hey, Ken. Hi, thanks. Hey, guys. Um, yeah, with the uh, national passport system that uh, I I really hope our government doesn't do that. Even I, I have my limits, too. When it comes to something like that with the freedoms and uh, our democratic system and stuff like that, um, I say no way. It's bad and wrong in so many ways and puts people into so many bad situations and divisions and stuff like that. I, no way. I draw the line on that. And yeah. I also I also hope that they are going to find out about this mixing of the vaccines, how it's working, hopefully sooner than later. I know it's tough. These people are doing a great job working in the labs, the workers. But, you know, having the AstraZeneca shot, I hope that's not going to end up being on the, the, the low end of the uh, line and us getting screwed on that um, because, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, okay. all I'm saying is well, I know, hope it's going to work out for the better with that mixing with AstraZeneca. Well, thanks. Thanks. not just AstraZeneca. So Moderna, so 275,000 people got AstraZeneca in BC, and that's been capped. No more first doses of AstraZeneca. But more than half a million people, 515,000 and counting people got Moderna, and we're not getting the same supply of Moderna. So right now we don't have enough Moderna to get that second dose to to people, uh, a greater number who got Moderna than AstraZeneca. So we're all focusing on AstraZeneca, but suddenly creeping up in the background is yeah. the concern about Moderna. I asked, we asked Dr. Bonnie Henry about that this week. She's not, she's concerned about it, but she thinks the people who got Moderna could also get Pfizer. Okay, we make a, more information on that this afternoon at this news conference at 2 o'clock. Benny in Abbotsford. Benny. Yeah, I'm a 76-year-old male who got his first vaccine shot in March and, re- and scheduled to get the second shot in July. I can't wait till I hear when I can get my second shot as soon as possible because our friend Jason last night on the 7 o'clock talk show said this Indian variant is only 30% effective against the first shot. So I'm really mm. concerned that I get the second shot as soon mm-hmm. as possible. Okay, so, Benny, thank so, you. So, Benny, you're going to get your second shot, <coughs> shot before July, it yeah. sounds like. Uh, and in terms of the Indian variant, every week there's a, an update on the variants, in BC, variants of concern in B.C. posted on the CDC website. The good news is the Indian variant did not increase by a significant number week to week. We were at 306 cases about two weeks ago. Uh, last week, it rose to about 376, which is not wow. really a growth. Okay, well, that's really good to hear. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Pam in North Van. Hi, Pam. Hi there. I'm just phoning about the Ferry Creek situation, and I'm wondering if uh, it's been been looked at that many of these First Nations communities are living in poverty and when they have access to their lumber then or to their trees then why wouldn't they cut them down what what have we done to to compensate them to say okay don't lose the trees and we'll find another way to make you financially viable thanks pam 
That may be the ultimate. Ultimately, may be the solution here, where it's just simply a cash payment, not to not to log that timber. I mean, that's yeah. certainly a possibility how to resolve this thing. But your, her point about First Nations living in poverty: there are two hundred three First Nations in in BC. Uh, they're different from each other, but some are mired in grinding poverty, and that's why a lot of them support resource extraction. And this particular First Nation, the Apache, that forestry and logging is absolutely crucial to this community. The mm-hmm. fishing has gone down for this yeah. community. They're trying to get tourism going. It hasn't been as big as they hope. The the forestry is really keeping a lot of their their services going and keeping people employed. So yeah. this is the this is the sort of the heart of the matter is how to ensure First Nations continue with economic development but at the same time protect the land. Thanks, Keith. Talk to you tomorrow.